0: Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. As some of you know, we started an old-time radio show podcast called 1001 Radio Days, where you can catch lots of great entertainment from what many call the golden age of radio between 1935 and 1955, before TV really caught on. Many of the radio shows were very well written and acted, and when TV became affordable in the 1950s, Many radio shows, like Gunsmoke and Dragnet, made the jump to TV. Besides newspapers and magazines, radio was the only game in town, and because they couldn't offer visual effects, they had to be good at describing things. Radio, which came into its own in the 1920s, was a mix of entertainment and news, and people listened breathlessly to the news. The War of the Worlds radio broadcast was one of those times when people confused entertainment with the news. And things got crazy fast. We're offering a full uncut version of the War of the Worlds with Orson Welles over at 1001 Radio Days right now. So check it out. And subscribe to 1001 Radio Days because you can catch all our episodes. And we've got a tremendous mix of vintage radio entertainment over there. And subscribe to 1001 Radio Days at your favorite host, so you can catch all our episodes. Subscribing is free. If this sounds like an unabashed ad for 1001 Radio Days podcast, you are right. The War of the Worlds phenomenon began as the brainchild of English author H.G. Wells, first printed in 1897 by Pearson's Magazine in the U.K. and then by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the U.S., It's one of the earliest stories to detail a conflict between mankind and an extraterrestrial race, in this case, Martians. And it remains popular today as a gripping mix of science fiction and terror. The original novel is written in the first-person narrative and takes place in Surrey, England. The War of the Worlds has been both popular and influential, spawning half a dozen feature films, radio dramas, a record album, various comic book adaptations, a television series, and sequels or parallel stories by other authors. It was most memorably dramatized in the 1938 radio program hosted by Columbia Broadcasting and aired the night before Halloween, and the script placed the invasion not in England, but in New Jersey, which caused public panic among listeners who did not know the Martian invasion was fictional. You might draw the early conclusion upon hearing that northeasterners had to have been as dumb as table grapes to fall for that but like so many other events in history you really have to place yourself in that time and location and see things through the filter of 1938 to catch on to how so many people panicked and they did first radio was king there was no tv no internet just print and radio news and print newspaper was 24 hours behind the actual event which left Radio. Most people listening that night knew that Columbia Broadcasting was doing a science fiction play, but some tuned in late and heard what they thought was live news that the Martians had landed in New Jersey. And panic struck, especially when they looked out their windows and saw their neighbors running for their cars with suitcases. Why people in New York City and surrounding areas would head for their cars when aliens were blasting away in New Jersey and the roads and bridges around New York were undoubtedly filled with cars is beyond reason, except that when people panic, they don't often take time to think things out. And this was a great example. And lots of families up there have crazy stories about what happened that night. Of course, it always involved some crazy uncle or aunt, and never mom and dad or grandma or grandpa, bless their souls, as you might imagine, but a lot of hastily packed suitcases and guns got thrown into the back seats of Buicks that night as people scattered in all directions away from New Jersey. This was the radio drama that made young Orson Welles a huge star and the darling of talk shows for decades to come. If ever a guy was launched on a single event, this was it. It was performed and broadcast live as a Halloween episode at 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938, over the Columbia Broadcasting System radio network. The one-hour program began with the theme music for the Mercury Theater on the Air and an announcement that the evening show was an adaptation of The War of the Worlds. Orson Welles then read a prologue which was closely based on the opening of H.G. Wells's novel, but modified to place the story's setting, in 1939, in the U.S. The novel was adapted for radio by Howard Koch, who changed the primary setting from 19th century England to the contemporary United States with the landing point of the first Martian spacecraft changed to rural Grover's Mill, an unincorporated village actually in West Windsor Township, New Jersey. You'll hear Orson Welles' famous golden voice right after the announcer opens up the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. Perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop. Then the next half hour of the broadcast is presented as a typical evening of radio programming being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. The first few bulletins cut into a program of ballroom dance music and describe a series of odd explosions observed on Mars. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals. This is followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unusual object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene. Another brief musical interlude is interrupted by a live report from Grover's Mill, where police officials and a crowd of curious onlookers have surrounded the strange cylindrical object, which has fallen from the sky. The situation quickly escalates when Martians emerge from the cylinder and attack using a heat ray, abruptly cutting off the shouting of the panicked reporter at the scene. This is followed by a rapid series of increasingly alarming news updates detailing a devastating alien invasion taking place around the world and the futile efforts of the U.S. military to stop it. The first portion of the show climaxes with another live report describing giant Martian war machines releasing clouds of poisonous smoke across New York City. After which, after which, the program takes its first break. During the second half of the show, the style shifts to a more conventional radio drama format and follows a survivor dealing with the aftermath of the invasion and the ongoing Martian occupation of Earth. For a one-hour radio show, this was first class. They have done some modern remakes, but I still like the original. To say that this show caused not only panic, but soon after a huge storm of controversy would be an understatement. Police lines were jammed. New Jersey and New York City were a total mess. Nobody could get in or out. Wells and Columbia had to fend off complaints for weeks and months after the show, but it brought success to all who were involved. The idea of using a fake newscast to create the show wasn't new, but it had never been done as well, and with U.S. cities as the theme. Wells discussed his fake newscast idea with producer John Hausman and associate producer Paul Stewart, and together they decided to adapt a work of science fiction. They considered adapting M.P. Shields' The Purple Cloud and Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World before purchasing the radio rights to The War of the Worlds. Hausman later wrote that he suspected Wells had never read it. Howard Koch had written the first drafts for the Mercury Theatre broadcast Hell on Ice on October 9th, 17 on October 16, and Around the World in Eighty Days, which is a great story, on October 23rd. Monday, October 24th, he was assigned to adapt The War of the Worlds for broadcast the following Sunday night. The whole script in three days, because it still had to be rehearsed, and special effects needed to be brought in. Ha! Now that was hard work. Tuesday night, 36 hours before rehearsals were to begin, Koch telephoned Hausman in what the producer characterized as deep distress. Koch said he couldn't make The War of the Worlds interesting or credible as a radio play. A conviction echoed by his secretary, Anne Froelich, a typist and inspiring writer whom Hausman had hired to assist him. Now you know how he did it. With only his own abandoned script for Lorna Dune to fall back on, Hausman told Koch to continue adapting the Wells fantasy. He joined Koch and Frolik as they worked on the script throughout the night. On Wednesday night, the first draft was finished on schedule. On Thursday, associate producer Paul Stewart held a cast reading of the script with Koch and Hausman making necessary changes. In that afternoon, Stewart made an acetate recording with no music or sound effects. Wells, immersed in rehearsing the Mercury stage production of Danton's Death, scheduled to open the following week, played the record at an editorial meeting that night in his suite at the St. Regis Hotel. After hearing Air Raid on the Columbia workshop earlier that same evening, Wells viewed the script as dull. So he stressed the importance of interesting news flashes and eyewitness accounts into the script to create a sense of urgency and excitement. And that's when it all started to come together. Hausman, Koch, and Stewart reworked the script that night, increasing the number of news bulletins and using the names of real places and people whenever possible. By Friday afternoon, the script was sent to Davidson Taylor, executive producer for CBS, and the network legal department. Their response was that the script was too credible and its realism had to be toned down. As using the names of actual institutions could be actionable, in other words, they could get sued CBS insisted upon some 28 changes in phrasing. Under protest and with a deep sense of grievance, we changed the Hotel Biltmore to the non-existent Park Plaza, Transamerica Radio News to Intercontinental Radio News, and the Columbia Broadcasting Building to just Broadcasting Building, Hausman later wrote. The United States Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C. was changed to the Government Weather Bureau, Princeton University Observatory to Princeton Observatory, McGill University in Montreal to Macmillan University in Toronto, New Jersey National Guard to State Militia, United States Signal Corps to Signal Corps, Langley Field to Langham Field, and St. Patrick's Cathedral to The Cathedral. Ah, those lawyers. On Saturday, Stewart rehearsed the show with the sound effects team, giving special attention to crowd scenes, the echo of cannon fire, and the sound of boat horns in New York Harbor. So listen for all those when you listen to the show. Early Sunday afternoon, Bernard Herman and his orchestra arrived in the studio where Wells had taken over production of that evening's program. To create the role of reporter Carl Phillips, actor Frank Reddick went to the record library and played the recording of Herbert Morrison's radio report of the Hindenburg disaster, over and over. And if any of you ever saw the episode of WKRP in Cincinnati, when when Les Nestman was reporting turkeys falling from the sky, which is a classic episode, that also was a take on the actual Hindenburg disaster report. Working with Bernard Herrmann and the orchestra that had to sound like a dance band fell to Paul Stewart the person Wells would later credit as being largely responsible for the quality of the War of the Worlds broadcast. Wells wanted the music to play for unbearably long stretches of time. The studio's emergency fill-in, a solo piano playing Debussy and Chopin, was heard several times. As it played on and on, Hausman wrote, its effect became increasingly sinister. A thin band of suspense stretched almost beyond endurance. That piano is the neatest trick of the show. There's another one to listen for. Dress rehearsal was scheduled for 6 p.m. Our actual broadcasting time from the first mention of the meteorites to the fall of New York City was less than 40 minutes, wrote Hausman. During that time, men traveled long distances, large bodies of troops were mobilized, cabinet meetings were held, savage battles fought on land and in the air, and millions of people accepted it emotionally, if not logically. So that's the story of War of the Worlds. Now search 1001 Radio Days at your Apple Podcast app or Stitcher.com. Or check our show notes for direct links. And keeping in mind everything we just covered, really enjoy the War of the Worlds at 1001 Radio Days. And we'll be back soon. And we'll be back soon.